0: All right, let's open in prayer as we dive into this text here. Lord, we thank you um, for your holy and your perfect word. And uh, we thank you for the story uh, that it tells and the, um, the living truth that we find in it. Uh, now, as we uh, sit here together, Lord, and study and talk about this text, I just pray that you would change our hearts to make us more Make us look more and more like you. Amen. All right, so we're back. This feels weird to be up high. You know, like my old church, I was all up high and everything. And uh, and then for years now, we've been at the other building. I'm like down low. I feel very important. Just kidding. <laughs> Don't put that in the podcast there. All right, um, we're back in the book of Luke. And if you remember, so we have... One, two, three, four. Four Luke sermons left. So for the rest of January, we're going to be in Luke. And then in February, we're going to start uh, the book of Ezekiel together. And if you've been with us for most of the book of Luke or any of the book of Luke, you've probably heard me talk about the purpose, why I chose Luke as the book to read while we launched our new church. And the reason we chose this book was because what we wanted to do was take a look at who Jesus really is. Who does... The, the scriptures, who does, the, what does, what kind of a picture does the scriptures paint of this man, right, this Messiah? And we have all these extra things that we kind of add to Jesus constantly, right? And uh, what we wanted to do was just kind of strip, what does the scriptures say about his life uh, and his time here on earth? And so we've been reading the book of Luke, and let me just recap, you know, because it's been since November since we've been in the book of Luke. So we're getting towards the end here, and we got to the Last Supper, uh, where he instituted communion with his disciples, and then we read about um, him going, Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and how they couldn't stay awake while he asked them to pray, and then the mob came, and Judas betrayed him, and Jesus was arrested, and we did a couple weeks, I think, on the sham trial of Jesus where, uh, you know, it was one of those, the verdict was decided before the trial kind of trials. And then we spent a couple of weeks reading the the crucifixion where Jesus was, right, uh, he was let out and he was, first he was beaten and he was tortured. And then while he's being let out, if you remember, the women uh, who were on the side of the road were wailing and crying for him. And he turned to them and he said, basically paraphrasing, right, the New John version. You think this is bad. Uh, You think this is bad what the Romans are doing to me. What they're about to do to this whole city is a lot worse. So he gives this prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then they lead him up and they crucify him. And we talked about how horrible that was. And um, we read about how he said, you know, he cried out, Father, forgive them, you know, for they don't know what they're doing. Right. So even on the cross, Jesus was a forgiving person. And we talked about the, the two thieves, right? The, 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 one of them made fun of Jesus. And the other one started by making fun of Jesus, is what one of the Gospels tells us. But then Luke tells us he changed his mind. And he turns to Jesus and he says, you know, um, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus says, truly I tell you, you will be with me today in paradise. These are two dying men on a cross. And one of them turns to the other one and goes, yeah, that guy, that's the king right there that guy coughing up blood, struggling to breathe. He's the, that's the first believer was this thief on the cross. And then we read about the death of Jesus, and we talked about how Jesus didn't die like everybody else, because the way you die on a cross is you slowly suffocate, you bleed to death, your energy, and your the whole point of the cross is to prolong the suffering until your strength completely gives way, and you can't move anymore, and you can't push yourself up to breathe. And so usually when you see somebody dying on a cross, the way it would work is you would have to kind of go, wait, is he dead yet? Because it just slowly happens. It's like a slow process. But what we read about Jesus is this is not how he died. He died. Luke consistently portrays the death of Jesus like Jesus is still in control of what's happening. And so he cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's not the last thing you do before you die from being crucified. And then it says he breathed his last and he died. So he gave up his own life. And then the last section that we read was the burial of Jesus. So he dies in the mid-afternoon. It's getting dark. It's about to be the, the uh, Sabbath. starts in the evening on Friday. And so a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, he goes to Pilate. Normally what they would do is they would leave a body on a cross for the birds to eat and to kind of be a warning to the rest of the, to rest of the Jewish people from the Romans. Hey, this is what happens if you mess with me. And so it was very unusual, but Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, he's a very important Jewish man. He goes to Pilate and kind of risks his own neck. And he says to Pilate, hey, can I take the body down and bury him? And Pilate says, yeah, basically, I don't care. That's fine. And so he puts, they put him in a tomb. And uh, there's a lot of uh, ritual burial stuff that they do, right? Like in our culture, we have some weird burial rites, don't we? What do we do we take a person's body and we clean it up real nice to pretend like they're not dead and then we put makeup on them for some reason and we put them on a very comfortable pillow for some reason in an $8,000 wooden box for some reason with gold inlay and the whole thing. And then we, you know, so we have our own rituals, right? And we know what they are. None of that stuff, nobody here just went, wait, I've never heard of that. This is what we do, and it's weird. They had their own stuff, and to us it might seem weird. They would wrap the body, and they would anoint the body in spices, and they would put it in a tomb, and they would leave it for quite a while. Then they would go back after the body had basically decayed, and they would take the bones and put them in a little box and then bury that box of bones. And so what they did was they took Jesus' body, and they put him in the tomb, and that's where we left it. That's where we left the story. Um, so today we're going to read, spoiler alert, he comes back to life. Here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. So now the story picks up in the very, it's been two months for us or a month and a half, but it's basically the very next verse from, and then they buried him. Jump to Sunday morning. There's really nothing in the scriptures, it's interesting about Saturday. What happened on Saturday? Right, these, these folks must have had a very long day on Saturday. And then Sabbath ends Saturday night, but it's kind of too dark to go do all their burial rituals. So they're waiting for very early. So they get up early at dawn. John tells us while it was still dark, Sunday morning was the first time that they were allowed to go do these burial rituals, and they bring the spices. Um, Like I said, burials, the way they did it is they had this whole ritual of spices and all this stuff that they would kind of mummify the body. But what this tells us is really interesting. These women, as they show up, what were they expecting to find? A dead body, right? They were not expecting to find a a resurrected, risen Savior. This is an important detail that Luke puts in here. The Gospels don't go like this. Jesus was crucified. They buried him. Then they showed up on Sunday with new clothes for Jesus because they knew he would be alive. And the angels showed up, as we'll read in a sec and said, why do you search for the living among the dead? And they're like, we're not. We know he's alive. Duh, he told us about it a hundred times. And then they sat around reading the Old Testament passages, waiting for Jesus to show up, talking about how he had fulfilled. No, that's not how it happened. Right, what happened? It goes like this. They expect to find a body. They show up, and what do they find? An empty tomb. We'll read about that. And the angels in the next couple verses are going to tell him, and they still don't get it. They don't completely understand. Everybody in this story is very slow to believe. And then you know the story of Thomas, right, doubting Thomas. Jesus eventually shows up to all the other disciples but him because he was out doing a coffee run. And then he comes back, and it's not until he's basically like, I don't believe it. I, I know all of you have told me this, but I'm not buying it, right? He becomes the poster boy, but let's be honest, this is how they all... Are portrayed in this story. Nobody goes, hey, I bet he's alive. They bring the spices to the tomb. And then, because they're expecting this body. But then, even after he comes back to life, in Matthew 20, what is that, 28? They saw him. This is the verse, like right before the Great Commission, right? You know the Great Commission? Make disciples of all nations in this, be-, you know. Okay, this is the verse before. And uh, they saw him. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. This is how much these folks had trouble believing the resurrection. Jesus is literally standing before them. And some of them are still, is that really Jesus? Right? So this was not an easy thing to kind of believe. It's, we don't, the, the disciples are not portrayed in a very good light in, this, in these stories. Um, the narrative is filled with, them doubting but it's also filled with these odd little details which makes us look at this and go like there's a couple guys who've written books like very academic books about this is not written like a fairy tale this is written like a bunch of people who got together and wrote down something that really happened so let's see what really happened they found the stone rolled away from the tomb so you've seen i should have put a picture of the garden tomb have you seen the garden tomb We've, I've actually used a picture of it for Easter. It's probably not where it really happened, let's be honest. We don't know where Jesus was buried. But we do have, this is another tomb, not in Israel. I think this one's in Greece, but from basically the exact same time period. And this is what the tomb actually would have looked like. So this, is a very, this, this woman was a very rich lady who was buried. Her family was all buried in this tomb. So the way it works is there's a little stairs. You kind of walk down. You can see, oh, look at that. You can barely see. Looks real good on my screen, though. Uh, let's see. That's the entrance to the tomb over there. That's the rock. And there's a little stairwell here. And you roll. The rock is in a little, the, stone, the, the circle door rock kind of thing is in a little groove that's like, like this. And it rolls in and out. So it's not impossible to roll it, but it is very heavy. And it's the kind of thing that if I showed up, I would be like, hey, Dennis, could you pick this up for me? <laughs> You guys know the drill, right? I don't pick things up or push things or, right, because of my back. So this is, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big rock, you know. Um, in the other Gospels, we're told the women on their way were like, we don't know how we're going to get into this tomb, which tells us that they don't know about the guards. So the other Gospels tell us that the Jewish leaders go to, the, go to Pilate and they say, hey, these disciples have been bragging about how Jesus is going to come back from the dead, which is really funny because none of the disciples actually believed he was going to come back from the dead at this point but the Jewish guys were worried about it. So they said, can we put some Roman soldiers to guard the tomb? Pilate goes, yeah, you can put some Roman soldiers. So they do. They put uh, a couple of guards. Now the thing about Roman soldiers and guards is if you, were, if you fell asleep on the job as a Roman soldier, it wasn't like, well, you really shouldn't have done that. you know. They would take you out back and they would chop your head off. These guys did not fall asleep on the job. These were some serious, this is the secret service. You know, there's like police we have. And, we, and when you see a police officer, you're like, oh, they're trained, whatever. If you ever bumped into a secret service guy, you'd go, oh, that guy's the real deal. This is, he's the top tier. These are the guys guarding the tomb. So the women, they show up. There's no guards, but they probably didn't even know about the guards. And the tomb, the stone is already rolled away. And so uh, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They went in. Okay, so this is actually seriously brave of these women because um, later on, uh, we'll read Peter and John, they run to the tomb. And in the book of the John, it, John tells us, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, that John is faster than Peter, and he beats him to the tomb. And I can see no reason for that except for that these two had a rivalry going, and he was like, I'm going to put this in the Bible, that I'm faster than you. So he, he beats him to the tomb, but then John is also very honest, and he says, but... I didn't go in. He was afraid. He was afraid to go in. Why? A lot of reasons. They're spooked by the dead stuff. But also, this is a time of grave robbers. They don't know who's if you it's like when you come home and your front door is open. And you're like most of us live in apartments or something, you know. Hmm. Uh, Melissa would say, John, go see who's in there, right? (laughs) And then I would do it, but I would be terrified. It's kind of like that, but way worse. So these women, they go in, they don't find the body. Again, they're not looking for a living Jesus. They're looking for Jesus's body. It says it right there. They didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse four, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So they're perplexed. One translation puts, while they were utterly at a loss, that's a really good translation, totally confused. Like when I have to do long division, that's the level of confusion here. And again, do you see how Luke portrays the disciples and these women? They don't know what is going on, right? This is not a heroic story. The disciples are not the hero, heroes in this story. Nobody looks in, sees the empty tomb and goes, I bet Jesus is alive. All right, so what does it take? Two men in dazzling apparel. Men, well, okay, they're angels. Luke tells us that later in verse uh, 23. But we have no time to get into angels and stuff today. It's just, I want to point out, how was Jesus born? Angels show up to the shepherds and say, hey, here's, this guy's born. How is he resurrected? Angels show up and tell these women. Same kind of thing. Um, Announcing the resurrection, just like the birth. And the Bible, a lot of times says the angels show up looking like dudes. And so that's what happens here. And uh, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. So what happens every time somebody in scripture bumps into an angel? The angel says, be not afraid. And we just think, oh, that's interesting. No, it's because everybody is terrified when the angels show up. And that's what the women do. The angels show up they're, they're glowing, and they're bright, and they hit the ground, and they're, they're in this, this posture of humility. And the angels say to them, it's almost this sort of soft rebuke, is how all the commentaries put it. It's a soft rebuke, right? It's not a, what are you doing? But it's like a, hmm, what are you doing <laughs> kind of a thing. And they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? This is the first announcement right here of the resurrection. This is how it's put. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you looking for a guy who's alive? in a cemetery? That's a weird question. They're probably like, oh, but he was dead. I remember, I seen the whole thing, right? These women were there. The disciples, they all took off, but the women, they stayed with Jesus. Some have said, this is interesting. Okay, so some, a lot of people in the last hundred years have tried to take a lot of the supernatural stuff out of our faith and pretend like they're still part of our faith. And they, what they'll say is, well, Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead bodily. It was a spiritual kind of a thing. And it's talking about spiritual life and all this stuff. The problem with that is the whole Bible, right? Um, This is from Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Right? So he was raised from the dead. He won't die again. That's something that talks about actual life and death. Uh, He says in this one, I died and behold, this is from Revelation. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Does that sound like a spiritual idea? No, we're talking about a guy whose body literally stopped breathing and then was resurrected and came back to life and the angels say guys okay wait no they say uh ladies because this is the women do don't you remember i could just see the angel's face shaking his head remember how he told you while he was still in galilee which is like that's a way to say he's been saying this the whole time galilee was the beginning of his ministry so it's like, from the beginning, don't you remember from Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise? Right, we don't really have time to get into all the different times Jesus said this. It could be a sermon. We could go back and reread the handful of times in Luke where Jesus was like, hey, guys, they're going to kill me. And Peter goes, no, I would never let them. And then Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. And, you know, this, this kind of pattern happens a handful of times in the Gospels. Jesus didn't spring this on the disciples. He told them a bunch of times. And what the angel says is, don't you remember he told you this? How this must happen, right? To fulfill, we're going to talk all about this next week, but to fulfill the stuff in the Old Testament. This was the plan all along. Jesus didn't trip and fall and land on the cross. He came to earth for the cross. And when when the angel said that, then, oh, they remembered his words. I do this a lot. Melissa says to me, hey, something, something about Thursday. And I go, what about Thursday? Because I have no idea what she's talking about. And then she starts to tell me. And as soon as she starts to tell me, I go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember now that you began to tell me. Right? That's how our minds work, because we're all dumb. We, <laughs> we push things into the back of our brains. They're still kind of there, but not really. And the angels kind of reach in and grab it. And the women go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, There's another little side note here that's really interesting. I don't have a lot of time to harp on this, but... Okay, there were 12 disciples, right? Out of those 12... That's the inner circle. So the inner circle is Peter, James, and John. That's three. Then there's the group of disciples. That's 12. Then there's a group of 70 or 72, depending on your textual criticism, right? But I think 70 is the bigger group that gets sent out and does stuff. And it might be easy to think... Well, that's everybody. We know those folks were all guys, right? But here's the thing. You know the story of Mary and Martha? Remember this from Luke 10? So Martha and Mary have Jesus over for dinner, and Martha is all bent out of shape. I'm washing the dishes. I'm baking the bread. And Mary is just sitting in there listening to Jesus talk. Now, we don't have time to get into that whole story again. But here's the interesting thing about that. What was Mary doing? She was sitting at the feet of a rabbi like a normal disciple, listening and learning. In this passage, what the angels say, they don't say, don't you women remember how Jesus told the disciples that he was gonna die and come back to life, right? What does he say? Remember how he told you, Mary Magdalene, you were sitting there when he said it, right? That's an important note about who it was in this group of early believers, right? This was very countercultural to have women included in this. I think it's a small detail, but it's very cool, but it gets even more amazing. We'll talk about the women in a minute. Anyway, and returning from the tomb. So this is what the angels say. And then the women returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and the rest. So Judas is already gone at this point. We don't know if the disciples knew what had happened to Judas yet on this day. You know, we don't know, but Judas is gone. And so um, they run back. You can imagine, okay, I'm gonna be honest. I'd never seen an angel show up in bright clothes and tell me anything cool. That's not how we planted the porch. It's not that an angel showed up and said, hey, dude, you should plant the porch. And I ran around and I told you all, hey, Dennis, the angel said you should be part of my church. You know, I've never had this happen. If an angel showed up and told me this, I'd be pretty jazzed. And I would do what these women did. And they ran back and they were very excited. Have you ever been really excited to tell somebody something and they were a total Debbie Downer about it? And it totally bummed you out? Has that ever happened to you? That can't just be me. It usually happens when the giants get a big free agent signing, and I go and tell Melissa, and she goes, "Who cares?" And I, get, "Yeah, you're right. It's not that big of a deal. But imagine if it was a big deal. Look at what the disciples do. What a bunch of punks. Let's read this next section here. Now it was oh, first, he lists the women, right? It was Mary, Magdalene, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like them. See, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So first we get the names of the women. We have Mary Magdalene, um, the gardener. You know the story where Jesus shows up to Mary, and then he, uh, she thinks he's the gardener? That happens after this. So she goes back to the tomb right after Peter and uh, John run there. So she still has not seen the Lord face to face. And then there's the other women, Joanna. Luke 8 tells us she had been healed by Jesus. Um, Mary is one of the five or six hundred Marys that followed Jesus around, and they're all kind of hard to pin down which one is which. Uh, This is the team, right? And it's astonishing. And let me tell you why this is astonishing. Because, again, Jesus was very radical in teaching women as part of his group of people that he taught. But it's also crazy because these were the first witnesses to the resurrection. In this culture, that's absolutely nuts, right? Because, let me tell you why, in this culture... They didn't have any sort of respect for women. And women weren't even allowed to testify in court. So if you're a woman and you saw somebody get murdered, you could go, hey, I saw that guy get murdered. And they would go, well, did a man see? That's the kind of culture we're dealing with. And when Jesus rises from the dead in his absolute perfect sovereignty, controlling everything that happens in the entire universe, who does he decide is going to be the first people to be witnesses of the resurrection? Bunch of women. And we'll get to this at the end. But if you were making up a religion, this is not what you would do, right? It's like now if I, okay, this is a terrible illustration and I don't believe this. I just got to put the disclaimer out there. But the it's the equivalent in our culture. This is how people back then thought. If I was trying to start a religion and I had a bunch of toddlers be the first witnesses to something, that's the level of respect that women had in this culture. It just wouldn't make sense. And that's not what happens, which is kind of how we know they didn't make this up it's such a weird thing to do it's it's backwards and even the way the disciples are portrayed here is exactly in line with their culture the women come back and they say these angels showed up and told us that jesus is alive and the guys go nah what (laughs) this is nuts right (laughs) keep going but peter so peter rose and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened okay so peter runs we're told peter's the only one in the i mean sorry peter we're told peter's not the only one john like i said in that verse john in his gospel points out he also ran with peter and he beat him to the tomb still my favorite verse in the bible maybe it's up there top five for sure and um, they get there, but John is way younger than Peter, probably. He's too afraid to look in. He doesn't go in. Peter looks in, and what does he see? Look at uh, John, tells us more about this. The face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up and place by itself. This is so weird. Peter looks in the tomb, and he sees Jesus' basically mummy kind of clothes, like the linens that they wrapped the body in. And they're all folded up. And then the thing that was around his head is folded, but it's like put on a different side. Now, if, so, if the body had been stolen, <coughs> why did they put this detail in here, right? Because if the body had been stolen, if somebody had showed up and taken the body, uh, you got to get in and out. You snatch that body and you, know, you hit the old dusty trail. You don't unwrap the body, which would have taken forever. And then fold up the clothes and do the laundry. And then put, you know, it's such an odd, it's such an odd specific detail. Again, this whole narrative, as we'll read continuing on, that's the last verse we're going to read today. But this whole narrative is littered with these little eyewitness details. And so our first part of the resurrection story ends like this. The women have told the disciples, the disciples are a bunch of punks and they don't believe them. And then Peter runs to the tomb and he finds the clothes. And that's where we're going to leave it today. Now, have you ever thought about this? Probably not. I'm guessing you've never thought about this. Have you ever noticed how all four Gospels give us the resurrection story, but none of the four Gospels actually tells us the resurrection story? Nobody narrates it. Nobody narrates the moment when Jesus' body was laying in the tomb, and then life came back into it. There's no part of the Gospels that say, and Jesus was laying on that slab wrapped up like a mummy, and then the tomb was filled with light, and the angels were singing, and some of the angels were outside trying to fight the demons who were trying to make it stop happening, and then, you know, there was a sound of harps, and we have no idea how it actually happened. Isn't that weird? We have a lot of stuff like that in Scripture that only God could have revealed, I have so many questions. Did Jesus sit up and unwrap himself? How did that work? Did a bunch of angels do it for him? Was there a light show with theatrics and a fog machine? Or was it more plain? He was just in there by himself and he started... You know, you've seen that in every movie where you think the guy's dead and then he coughs and water comes up and he didn't really drown. You know, did it kind of work like that? Uh, Yeah, what happened? How did this happen? We have no idea. Why do we have no idea? because nobody saw it happen. Nobody saw the actual moment. And so what do we have? Right, we have testimony written down, like in a court case. And what's interesting is all of the testimony fits together. How do I put this without being blasphemous? It fits together, but it's not perfectly consistent. And what I mean by that is like, one gospel mentions two angels. Another gospel mentions one angel, because only one of them talked, right? And so whenever you get a whole bunch of people telling the same story, that if they're telling it consistently, they're still going to tell it in different ways. Does that make sense? Without contradicting each other, they're telling the same story. And that's what happens here, right? The exact order that Jesus appeared to who, it's a little bit fuzzy and it's kind of hard to piece together, if I'm being honest. When did Mary see Jesus? Jesus. When did Peter run to, you know, what was the exact order? There's like four or five different options of where things go. And the reason it's a little fuzzy was because we're dealing with real eyewitness testimony. And so what the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, what it gives us is not a supernatural telling of the story. It's the the disciples, it's these women telling us, this is what we saw. We're actual, real, flesh and blood people, and we're writing down what we saw. And the idea is, I need you, reader, To look at this and then make a decision for yourself. Do you believe the case that we're laying down? And so today, in the last like 15 minutes here, what we're going to do, I'm going to give you the outline for all of chapter 24. You ready for this? Today, we're going to talk about, did this really happen? Next week, we're going to talk about how this was Jesus's plan, right? This is God, Yahweh God. This is the plan from the very beginning. And then in two weeks, Uh, we're going to talk about why the resurrection happened. We're going to do an Easter sermon. Today's an Easter sermon, too. We're doing three weeks of Easter sermons. I don't know what I'm going to do in April. (laughs) Today in April, we're in Hosea. I don't know. I'll find something, right? Because we're going to wear out Easter here in January. Um, And then in uh, the last week in January, we're going to do the Ascension. And we're going to talk about why the Ascension is just as important as the death and resurrection, even though we never talk about it. So today... What we're going to talk about is this in the end here, as I wrap this up. Did this really happen? Can we believe these gospel writers and these witnesses? It's really important that we get this right. Um, A.W. Tozer. Do you guys know Tozer? He said this. um, No, I don't have this quote up on the thing. The Christian church is helpless and hopeless if stripped of the reality and the historicity, word of the day, the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Basically, what Tozer says is the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It goes like this. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, we're wasting everybody's time, and we're the people in the world that are the most to be pitied. If he did rise from the dead, it's a game changer. So let's just take a second then and follow the logic of how the Bible Bible presents this story. The first thing is a historical fact. Is the first historical fact goes like this. The tomb was empty. There definitely Sunday morning was an empty tomb. Now there's a guy, his name is N.T. Wright. Do you guys know N.T. Wright? N.T. Wright is an author, uh, he's an Anglican guy. Uh, he wrote a bunch of other stuff that I don't like so much about justification and whatnot. But he also wrote, something I do like very much, he wrote probably the most important book that's ever been written about the resurrection. And the good thing is, you guys don't have to read it because I already read it for you. (laughs) It's one of those books. It's like, you know, uh, back in the day, I had a cyst in my hand, you know, right here. And I had to have surgery, I had this big giant scar. And what they told me was back in the day, they used to take a, they put your hand on the table and they would smack it with the biggest book that they could find and try to get the cyst to pop just, you know, to kind of like that, right? Anyway, this is a cyst popping book. (laughs) This is one of these, you know what I mean? Okay, so you, so you guys don't have to read it. So I'm not putting this on the thing so you'll go by and read this book. But N.T. Wright, what he says is this. I'll, I'm gonna talk about him a little bit here. But he says, look, the two things which must be regarded as historically secure when we talk about the first Easter are the emptiness of the tomb and the meetings with the risen Jesus. What he said, <clears throat> basically, he goes into in-depth kind of historical analysis to say uh, the tomb was empty. There definitely was in Jerusalem on this uh, Sunday morning, there was a guy who was supposed to be in a tomb and nobody could find the body. Josephus, who was not a believer, <clears throat> a Jewish historian a couple of years later, he talked about this event. Within months of this happening, disciples were going all over the ancient world telling everybody that they had seen Jesus alive and nobody goes, Now nah, we have the body. There's literally nothing in the ancient world where anybody says, "I don't know what these guys are all talking about. We know the tomb was not empty." So we have to start with this idea. Historically, it's like secure fact that the tomb was empty. Um, so whether or not you believe the resurrection happened, if you don't believe the resurrection happened, I'll say this, you've got to come up with something. You've got to explain why that tomb was empty on Sunday morning. So what are the options? Let's talk about all the options that people give to explain he didn't rise from the dead. Here's what really happened. I want to go through these. The first is called the swoon theory. You ever heard of this? The swoon theory. That's fun to say. Swoon. Sounds like I'm starting my motorcycle. Kickstarting. Swoon, swoon. No. Um, the swoon theory goes like this. He didn't die. He fainted. Right. Isn't, swoon is like that word they talk about when Victorian ladies would have their corsets too tight and they'll go, ho, oh, you know. So, Okay. This is the theory, is that Jesus lost a lot of blood, didn't he? And when you have that much blood, have you ever passed out giving blood? Anybody ever did that? One time I completely, I don't know if your pastor is allowed to admit that he lied, but I totally lied to the lady and I told her I ate lunch and I didn't eat lunch. And I was giving blood. And I do that one where they take it out of one arm and they spin it in a science machine and they take something they need for leukemia people and then they put the rest back in the other arm. It takes like 45 minutes. So I was sitting there. I've completely lied to this lady that I ate lunch. And then I said, "Mm, I don't feel so good. (laughs) And they had to run and flip my chair backwards. so All the blood would run. It was a whole thing, right? So now I eat lunch before I go. Basically, the idea goes like this. Jesus also did not eat lunch, apparently. Lost a lot of blood. He's on the cross. He faints. Everybody thinks he's dead. They take this body that's still breathing. And they put him in a tomb. They wrap him up. Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning or something, he wakes up. Oh, boy, that was uncomfortable. And then he walks out, and he convinces everybody that he's alive. All right, let me tell you a few problems with this theory. Let me poke some holes in the swoon theory. Um, oh, wait, did I switch the thing? Sorry, we're not to that quote yet. Don't read ahead. Um, okay, the first thing is we're told the Roman soldiers that killed Jesus, they were professional people killers. They were executioners. Okay, there was a special squad of soldiers detached with every regiment or however you want to put it, right? Every cohort that their job was to execute people. That's how many people the Romans executed. Their armies always had the guys. These guys were good at it, okay? You ever done something once and you didn't know what you were doing and then you do it again a second time and you're like, boy, that was so easy. How did I not know the first time? Okay, after the couple of thousandth crucifixion that these guys have done, they know what they're doing. And the gospels even tell us, They went up to Jesus and they were going to break his legs because that makes you die faster. And they go, oh, he's already dead. So just to make sure, let us stab him in the heart with a spear. And so they take a spear up and, you know, so the, the, the wounds that you talk about, the hands, the feet, the thorn of crowns and the spear, right? And then they take him down. The odds that those guys messed up is pretty low. Second... Let's say it did happen. Okay, Um, do you guys remember when I crashed my motorcycle? Okay, let me tell you which time, because you all just went, which time? Yeah, yeah, okay, and it landed on my leg and I had my nasty foot, okay? And then the doctor said, you can't wrap up your foot. And I was like, "Mm, I gotta go on this retreat and my foot is pretty nasty. Okay, do you remember me hobbling around Chick-fil-A? Now, nobody would look at me and go, That guy's got it together. That's just one foot scratched up a little bit. The the beating and crucifixion that Jesus endured, there is a 0% chance that somebody who went through that and then fainted could wake up on Sunday and convince everybody that he had risen from the dead, unless he really rose from the dead. Like his wounds, you know, how long would it take him to recover? Nobody would look at that guy and go, that's my king and my savior. So swoon theory doesn't make a lot of sense. The next one also doesn't make a lot of sense. It's that Jesus stole, I'm sorry, the Jewish leaders stole the body. This was popular for a little while, but everybody realized it doesn't make sense, so nobody really says it anymore. But the theory is, the way I heard it was like this. The leaders stole the body so that the disciples could claim he rose from the dead, and then they could bring out the body and be like, ha ha, gotcha, and then they lost the body or something. Okay. That's like 14 turns, you know, like, come on, really? I, I, I don't even know how to refute that except for, that. okay, okay maybe, but no. <laughs> right? That, that doesn't make any sense. Because none of the leaders in the early church, I'm sorry, in the early Jewish world went, we had the body, we just lost it. Nobody said that, so it doesn't make sense. The next is that the disciples stole the body. All right, let's talk about the disciples for a second. How are they portrayed in the Gospels? They're a bunch of chickens. They take off. Peter's crying. Everybody's running away. These are not fighting men who are going to walk up to a bunch of armed Roman soldiers, beat them in a battle, steal the body. You know, it doesn't. It just it doesn't make sense. The second reason we know this probably wouldn't have happened goes like this: uh, eleven guys. Okay, this is a conspiracy, and. The conspiracy is they did this to become rich and famous and powerful or whatever. The problem is every one of those 11 didn't become rich, famous, or powerful. They spent most of their lives in misery on the road, going around telling everybody that Jesus had risen from the dead. Out of those 11, 10 of them were killed for their faith. If you take 10 people and you tell them a lie, and then you start torturing them, one of them is going to crack. Probably more than half. Every time I watch a movie where somebody gets tortured, I go, I would give all of you up so fast. I would be, <laughs> I am not, that they would get those pliers out to take my fingernails off. I'll be like, I'll tell you anything you want to know, right? I'm a, this would not go well. I assume a lot of the disciples are probably chickens like me. And then John was tortured, but he didn't die. So we can really say all 11 were tortured for their faith and not one of them gave up the fact that they had hid the body. Just, it doesn't add up. The next theory, the wrong tomb, everybody, right? The guards, the soldiers, the women, the disciples, the Jewish leaders, and then everybody for years afterwards while they were looking for the body. Now, nah, that doesn't make sense. The next one is that the whole thing is just a myth, right? Myths develop, it happens. But the problem with it is this isn't a myth that developed. This was by the end of the weekend, everybody believed this, And we know that they were writing it down within 20 years. About 20 years was the book of Mark after this happened. 20 years is not long ago to make up that somebody rose from the dead. Even 50 years. If I tried to start a thing that was like JFK rose from the dead, almost everybody would be like, you're nuts. Almost everybody, apparently, right? But I mean, you know, serious people, that's not enough time to make up a myth that develops. The way a myth develops is somebody tells a story and then that story passes for hundreds of years until everybody doesn't remember if it's real or not. You know, that's how myths develop. 20 years is not nearly enough time. And the other thing with the myth theory is all of these books that we have that are very early. So like 1 Corinthians, the book we just read, Luke. Did you notice Luke wrote down all the women's names? There was Joanna and Mary and Mary Magdalene and Peter. Why did they? And then Paul does the same thing. And at one point, Paul even says there were 500 of them. And if you don't believe me, go find them. Why would you do that if people, if you didn't think that those people really had seen Jesus alive? Right? So the myth theory, just these people were still alive when this stuff was written down. Here's my favorite one. Jesus had a twin. It's called the substitution hypothesis. You ever see that movie, The Prestige? Well, I just spoiled it for you, Uh, (laughs) you know, but have you seen that? It's been 20 years, so I can spoil that movie. But the magic trick is the guy goes in one box and he comes out the other one and it turns out the two guys were living a life. They were twins, but they they would take turns wearing a disguise. And it was their whole life. Nobody knew that they were even twins. So Jesus, you're telling me he had a twin all those years. His mom didn't know about the twin, by the way, because she was a serious believer. I don't know. At this point, we're just pulling stuff out of a hat. Um, The next one is the hallucination theory. The problem with that is I can hallucinate, and I take some shrooms or some LSD or whatever, and I think I saw something that I didn't see. Okay, can 500 people have the same hallucination? No. Paul says, dude, there were like 500 people that saw him. And if you don't believe me, go ask him. Hallucination theory doesn't make a lot of sense. The mistaken identity theory... They crucified the wrong guy. Nobody noticed. And then Jesus showed up and was like, see, remember they crucified me? I mean, again, at this point, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, Because Jesus' mom and friends and all those women and John, they were all hanging out at the cross and nobody goes, weren't Jesus' eyes brown? You know, like it, I don't know. I don't buy it. It's just, it's a stretch. Um, and here's, okay, no, I lied. Here's my actual favorite. Okay. And this is real. Like you can go read a book about this. Like you can go to Amazon and there's a book about this. It's called the alien theory. Yeah, Sue, Sue wrote the book. Just kidding. Um, the theory that Jesus was some kind of an alien who had advanced abilities, Okay, so you think I'm nuts because he rose? I think he rose from the dead, but you think he was an alien is a better explanation. Again, I don't know. <laughs> right? I, I, okay, now let's take the biblical case. Those are the theories. Let me give you a couple of reasons why we can say, I bet this really happened. I'm going to do this fast because I'm almost out of time. The first is... Um, All of a sudden, this is a big part of N.T. Wright's book. This is what he says. The resurrection, sorry, wait, let me jump. Never mind, I'm not going to read that yet. Um, N.T. Wright, the whole first part of the book, what he says is this. Uh, The idea of a man being resurrected in the middle of history was completely foreign thinking to everybody in the first century Jewish world. So everybody, a lot of folks, the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, they believed that the resurrection would happen, but at the end of time. Before the Christians claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. There wasn't a single thing about anybody ever being resurrected during history. And this new belief, he says, popped up just completely out of nowhere. And what he says, what he goes into like some very dense historical research and stuff. And he says, that's not weird because a lot of beliefs come into being. People didn't used to believe something and now they do. But what he says is you can always trace the thought process, and how it changed over time to get from here to this new belief. And like the myth theory, he says it takes time for that stuff to develop. And there's not a single belief in history that just pops up out of nowhere, except for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that people can rise from the dead in the middle of history. And so he really gets into this. The second, so that's the first thing. The new beliefs is just, it, it doesn't happen the way, unless... It really happened, and people really believed that they saw Jesus. The second thing we already talked about is the women witnesses. Again, if you're making up a religion, you don't start with women as witnesses. You have the other witnesses, like we talked about. You have the explosion of the church. Other movements fizzled out, except for this one. They kill the leader, and the movement fizzles out. Uh, Daryl Bloch says, the resurrection was not created for the church. Rather, the church was created by the resurrection. Meaning... The only way to explain the church exploding the way that it did is if this resurrection really happened. Another, um, I'm kind of flying through these here, another point that leans, to- leans us toward this really happened is James and Jude. James wrote the book of James, Jude wrote the book of Jude, they're in the Bible, you should check them out, they're pretty good. Anyway, those are Jesus' little brothers. And I joke about this a lot when we read that uh, benediction from Jude. But do you know what it would take for me to worship my little brother as Jesus or my older brother? I mean, as like, not Jesus, as a Messiah, as a God figure. For me to go around and tell people, hey, my brother Chris is divine and you should worship him. I would have to see him die and come back to life. And then stand with a bunch of angels and tell me I'm the Messiah. During the ministry, these two guys didn't like Jesus and they thought he was nuts. And we're told that a few times. His family thought he was crazy. And then all of a sudden now they're worshiping him and James is leading the early church in Jerusalem. That's a pretty big deal. Um, I, I talked about no time for a myth to develop. The disciples were martyred. Okay, here's the last one. We're very stuck up in the West in the 21st century. We think we're better than everybody and we think we're smarter than everybody that's ever lived. And C.S. Lewis, he calls this chronological snobbery. I love that. Chronological snobbery. And what this is is we look back at other cultures and even across the water at other cultures and we say we know better than them and we're the smartest people that ever lived. And we do that here and we think these are all a bunch of dumb country bumpkins who didn't have science, they didn't know anything, they could all barely read, of course they believed Jesus came back from the dead, they were all a bunch of gullible idiots. Tim Keller talks about this. He says, look, I sympathize with the person Who says, so what if I can't think of an alternate explanation? The resurrection just couldn't happen. Let's not forget, however, that the first century people, they felt the same way. They found the resurrection just as inconceivable as you do. The only only way anyone embraced the resurrection back then was by letting the evidence challenge and change their worldview, uh, their view of what was possible. They had just as much trouble with the claims of the resurrection as you, yet the evidence, both the eyewitnesses' account and the changed lives of Christ's followers were overwhelming. So these people, a lot of people around this time, they looked at the evidence, they looked at the lives of the disciples, the Spirit worked in their lives, and they came to believe it. All of a sudden, within a couple of weeks, 40 days, there were hundreds of people traveling around telling people that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. That's kind of a big deal. Now, um, again, today's sermon is not why. We're not getting into the theological stuff with the resurrection. That's two weeks. All I want to do today is to just make the case that it really happened. Um, I'll kind of end with this, I guess. Um, okay, so most of us here believe this already. I'm literally preaching to the choir. Nobody's like, oh, maybe he did rise from the dead, I think. You know, we're a small church. We all kind of know each other. Um, so what, I want, I'm, what I'm hoping for with this sermon is for two things. The first is I want you to leave with a stronger sense of what you already believe. If you think Jesus rose from the dead, you're not an idiot. There's a strong, just take faith, take uh, the Holy Spirit working in your life, take all of that out of it. Just historically, something happened. And it's either aliens or he rose from the dead, I guess. You know, You believe what you want to believe. The second thing, though, is I want to leave you with is a little bit different. Look at the city we live in. Look at the neighborhood we live in, or that our church is in. Think about the people around us right now, and think about the story that we actually believe. I just made the case that it's totally plausible. It is. But it's also totally nuts. (laughs) Just because there's historical evidence for something doesn't mean it's not totally crazy. And we really do believe that there was a first century Jewish man who claimed to be God. He was crucified by the Romans, and then God brought him back to life as a down payment on our resurrection and that he walked out of a moldy, disgusting tomb in the ground as the risen king. That's what we believe. I actually believe that. Right, if you put a gun to my head, I think I would go, yeah, that's what I believe. That's nuts, right? That's a little bit crazy. Well, kind of. So. One of the books that I want to do on our Wednesday nights, we have a couple of things. We want to do a How to Study the Bible series, but one of them I want to get to maybe later this year is this book. It's called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. It's a great, this book is fantastic. It's by an Australian pastor named Sam Chan. And uh, what, in that book, he talks about something called plausibility structures. And in that, he talks about um, why do we believe stuff? Why is it you believe what you believe? And he gives a few reasons. And he gives this illustration. He says, imagine if you met, I'm kind of paraphrasing this whole thing, but imagine if you met a guy that you don't know at all, homeless guy or something on the street, and you're talking. He says, yeah, man, I was abducted by aliens. What would you say? Nah, man, I don't think so. Right? You don't believe him. But now imagine that you showed up on Wednesday to group to missional family dinner and every single person there said to you, we were abducted by aliens. You know us, you know me, I'm not a liar, right? I'm not dishonest, we all trust each other, we live life together. You would have to at least go, maybe? See the community gives you, so what he does, he says there's three things that change our minds, things that give us plausibility structures. He says the first is community. The second is your own experience or the experiences around you. And the third is facts, evidence, and data. We can't convince people that Christianity is true without all three of those things, really, is is Chan's kind of contention in this book. Today, we talked about that third one, the evidence. We have to have the evidence, but that's also not enough. We can't just go out there with facts and tell people, let me tell you about the swoon theory. That's not really going to make converts. And this is where our missional living, our pabst blue ribbon, investing in your neighbors and that sort of thing comes in. People have to, A, they have to see our community and they get to know us and then they go, these people aren't crazy. And what that does is uh, it, move, it makes the idea of the resurrection a little more plausible. And then they have to see the power of the resurrection in our lives. They have to see us living out this, this idea that Jesus really has raised from the dead. And then we have to give them the evidence. And I think what a lot of churches do is one or the other. Some churches are really good at the evidence. We do Josh McDowell classes and we have, you know, we know all the answers. We do our why there is no God study. We learn it all. And we don't know any of our neighbors and we don't care, right? And then other churches, on kind of the other side of a theological spectrum, are all about, oh, let's just love people and you know, let's, let, let's just uh, you know, serve our neighbors, which is great. But if you're doing that without at the same time the power of the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection, you're not going to do much at all. And so what I want you to leave with is just the the idea, the conviction that we're called to be witnesses to the resurrection, but not just know all the facts. We believe this really happened. I just gave you a bunch of reasons. Guys, this really happened. But at the same time, we want our neighbors to believe it really happened. Um, Clement of Alexandria is like his old dead guy. He said... Christ, talking about the resurrection, has turned all of our sunsets into dawns. Meaning at one point we were in darkness and now we're in light because of the resurrection. This is what we want for our neighbors, to move from the darkness to the light. And the way we do that is we love them, we serve them, and we live out the truth of the resurrection. Amen?